I'm aware we have elementary students all the way up through high school in here this morning. <clears throat> just a subtle reminder about Family Sunday, as you've heard. Um, just a small note that I want to make. Uh, this is a Family Sunday not because we are uh, raising families up above everyone else. It's a Family Sunday because we're together as a family, just to be, just to be clear. Um, also, uh, yeah, it is a Family Sunday. So elementary students... Middle school and high school, welcome. Glad you're in here. Uh, <clears throat> our text today was Numbers 12, if you remember it being read. It involved God um, giving a woman leprosy, talking about s- spitting on her, and then marginalizing her to the edge of the community. The text that was given to me this morning, that apparently this is a sermon where I get completely canceled and I will never be up here again. <laughs> this is it. It's over. Uh, no, I hope, I hope this morning, one of the reasons I actually... This text was such a challenge is because I love texts that are a challenge, and I really hope that this morning we can enter into a really complex text and really wrestle with it as um, mature people. I think that would be very good. Man. All right. Before we do that, I was 13. My brother was nine, and every summer we would go to Table Rock Lake. It's like, our, it's like our thing. It's like we did, what we did as a family. We stopped taking trips um, to other places because we just loved going to the lake so much. And we always would rent these little tiny cabins, like these little fisherman cabins. And my uh, dad would um, get the whole place set up. But, I mean, literally the cabin was like one room and then two bedrooms off to the end. So we would run in. My brother and I would run in with our bags. We would have one room, and it was like the same one every time. And it had three beds in it. So the room that we were in had a bed here. As you enter the door, there was a bed straight across, a bed here, and a bed kind of at an angle. And we would take our bags and we would dump everything we had in our bags onto the third bed. And then we would, like, call which bed we would get on. And um, that's just kind of how we always did that. And then as the evening came for our first night, um, I was getting to the age where the Royals game was on TV. And I was going late, and my dad was usually like, hey, get to bed, we're going to get up early, we're going to go out in the boat early. But I was getting to the age where he was kind of letting me set my own thing, you know? And my brother went to bed, but I stayed up and watched the Royals game. And my dad goes, hey, before you go to bed, I brought my acoustic guitar, because I was a Christian teenage boy who was trying to get girls. So, <laughs> so in the manual, when you get that, it says, learn the guitar. And it's like, oh, Okay. <laughs> But, uh, so my dad's like, put your guitar away before you go to bed. Someone's going to trip over it. (laughs) Foreshadowing. So I was like, okay, sure. And so I finished the Royals game. It's late. I go in. As I walk into the room, everyone's asleep. Um, I turn the light on in the bedroom. And my brother's like, ugh. Like, he's not quite asleep yet. But he's like, what's going on? I'm like, go back to sleep. It's just me. So I lay down on my bed. And I reach up and I flip off the light. And when I do that, I notice for the first time when the TV's off and all the lights are off, we were out in the middle, like, we, it is dark, like, dark, dark. Like, if you've been out, there's, you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's very dark. And in that moment, my brother goes, Cole, don't scare me. <laughs> and I go, sure, okay. <clears throat> so at this moment, I realize I'm going to scare my brother. And I get up, and I kind of sneak over to his bed, Really, I get really quiet, and he can't hear me. And as I get up out of the bed, you hear, 
on the bed, and he goes, cool. <laughs> and I'm like, no. I'm like, and I was like, it's fine. <laughs> and so I like, I sneak over to the bed, I hold my breath and close my nose, and I get like super close to him. In my mind, I'm like this close, and I, I, I swear to you, all I, go, I do is I go, boo. And he screams, <laughs> screams so loud, which I turn and run and jump back in my bed, and uh, I'm laughing so hard. He is yelling at me, just like throwing his sheets. I hear in the other room, and like a banging around, a sound of a guitar going, a giant thud, and then into my room, a light flips on, and a middle-aged man with hair up on edge and in whitey tidies is like, what is going on in here? Don't you know we're out in the middle of nowhere? Why are you yelling out like that? Blah, 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 blah. Cool, I told you to put your guitar away. Blah, blah. And he is just going, he's going nuts. He's going absolutely ballistic on me. And uh, at that point, I pull the covers down over my head because I'm laughing so hard. Because when my dad would get mad, I just like start laughing. I look and my dad can't see without his glasses. And he is screaming at the third bed with all of our clothes on it. <laughs> just like getting after it. To which my brother and I make eye contact, and we're like, oh, no, this is so funny. So then he goes back to bed. He goes back to bed, and we're laughing, and it was also, like, so, it was intense. It's the maddest I've ever seen my dad. And, like, he lays down in bed, and it finally gets quiet. And I hear my mom go, Curtis, are you okay? <laughs> and, my dad, and I hear my dad say, Debbie, I think I broke my arm. <laughs> I don't know. So funny, like families, I'm sure, I'm sure all of you have like these stories that are these family stories. Families are weird, like we're just thrown together. We're just thrown together and we have these strange, funny, slightly traumatizing, bizarre stories. And on the one hand, family is like tumultuous and contentious. And on, on the other hand, it's a shared life together rooted in the same dirt. It's both things at the same time. It's contentious and it's also just like... This is like, this is what we have. So within the relationship of the family is, a, is simultaneously potential for catastrophe and solidarity. And that's not lost on the scriptures. And this morning, Numbers 12, the text that we're talking about, actually uses a family drama. At the heart of this story is a family drama. And it tells us something about God, ourselves, and more so our life together. So let's look at the first verse here. Um, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Okay, so Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses are not just an ordinary leadership team, right, uh, of the people of God. Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, these primordial prophets of Israel, the central core of Israel's leadership, these leaders of the people of God during the most vulnerable and formational time as we've been talking about in the history of the Jewish people, these three are first and foremost siblings. And unlike the legends and stories and tales of other nations' histories where everyone succeeds and they're all great, uh, I have to tell you Numbers 12 feels really real to me. It's like one of those stories that you would probably tell. So let's take a quick stroll down memory lane uh, for those of us who need a little reminder of who Moses Aaron and Miriam are. So Moses, first up. We've talked exhaustively about Moses um, as, a, as a, 
Christian culture. Uh, it's hard to go anywhere in our culture and at least ha- not have some sense of Moses. Um, Moses, I would think, is probably the second, third, or fourth biggest name in religion outside of Jesus. Um, Muhammad and Buddha would have an argument, but Moses is a big deal uh, in Christianity and Judaism and Islam. And the reason he is such a big deal is because Moses talks to God face to face. Like, it's a huge deal. Moses sees God, or sees where God was, at least. So, remember, Moses was born during a time when Pharaoh was killing all all Israelite males born in Egypt. And he was put in a basket and sent down a river in hopes he'd survive this horrible crime against humanity. He winds up in the arms of Pharaoh's daughter in this great irony, who found Moses in the basket and was raised with Egyptian and Jewish culture and heritage. And then remember, Moses kills a guy. That was a turn in the story. And he runs from Pharaoh. He, like, runs out of Egypt. Um, He goes out to the wilderness. He finds a new family. He gets married. And he kind of accepts his fate as this shepherd, this person out in the wilderness, uh, a murderer. And then Moses sees a burning bush. And God speaks to Moses and is like, hey, I'm not done with you yet. And God says, go back to Pharaoh and lead my people out of bondage and into the wilderness. Um, Pull my people out from what Pharaoh is doing to them. And Moses says, "Uh, real quick, I stutter a lot and I'm a murderer. And uh, yeah, how about anyone else but me? And God says, yes, you, your brother Aaron will speak for you. Aaron. Aaron. Uh, Aaron was Moses' older brother. Tradition says that he was born three years before Moses, before the Pharaoh's edict requiring the death of male Hebrew children. And Aaron, in the long run in the story, becomes the founder of the Levite priests in Israel. It's a big deal. It's a big role. The Levite priests gave their life to the temple to be mediators between Yahweh and God's people. And Aaron served as Moses' spokesperson, um, as discussed above. Wait, that's in my text. As discussed previously. Yeah. Uh, Moses was not eloquent uh, and, again, had a speech impediment, so Aaron spoke for him. So contrary to popular belief, right, it was Aaron, not Moses, who cast down the staff that became a snake before Pharaoh. It was Aaron, not Moses, who held out his staff to trigger the first three plagues against Egypt. And according to Jewish tradition, it was also Aaron who performed the signs for the elders before they went to Pharaoh. So, in fact, you'll, if, you find a, if you read a close reading of Moses' life, Moses didn't actually do much of anything um, other than, and it's a pretty big trick, uh, listen to God and, re, and look at God and then relay the message to the people. So Aaron's most notable quality is that he was a peacemaker. Uh, Rabbi Hillel, who was like, uh, you know, if Jesus went to Jewish school, he would have studied Rabbi Hillel. Um, Be disciples of Aaron. Uh, Hillel says this about Aaron. Be disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace, loving people and drawing them near the Torah. So according to tradition, when Aaron heard that two people were arguing, get this, He would go to each of them and tell them how much the other regretted his actions until the two people agreed to face each other as friends. Um, Yeah. So yes, Aaron was Moses' older brother. 
However, all this talk of peacemaker and all this probably forgetting of that Aaron was the one that actually did all these things uh, is actually a clue to what Aaron was in the family. Aaron was the middle child (laughs) because Miriam is the oldest. Aaron is the middle brother and Moses is the baby. So according to some sources, Miriam uh, was seven years older than Moses. Some say a little bit older than that. And there's not a lot written about Miriam in the Torah. There's not uh, much written at all, like three or four stories. Um, She's involved in some of the weirdest and strangest moments throughout the liberation of God's people. She's right there with her brother Aaron and Moses. And the early scriptures always mentions her as a key member of the leadership of Israel, but they don't give us a lot of stories. And so for some reason, um, we don't really know why. Scripture is oddly silent. I mean, I have my guesses. But the scripture is oddly silent about a lot of Miriam's life and story. We have to actually have to go to the Talmud or the, Midrash or the Midrash or other rabbinical writings to understand how important she was to the early teachers of Judaism. While the Torah does not give us much information, the Talmud and the early rabbinical writings were kind of obsessed with Miriam. They wrote about her a lot because there isn't a lot mentioned about her, yet they would say she's a, she's a foundational member of the Jewish leadership. So here's a, here's a good example of what I mean. Some Talmudic sources claim that Miriam was also called Pua. They would say uh, that she had this other name. And in the Torah, Pua is actually mentioned. Um, she was one of the midwives that was um, involved in birthing the babies like rebelliously as Pharaoh was killing the children. She was mentioned as like this midwife that would help birth the children. Um, but like, where did they get this idea? How could, how could uh, Pua and Miriam be the same person? The rabbis were all in agreement that Miriam's role, early role in Egypt um, was a little bit different than what we imagine her to be. So Miriam, the rabbis would say, would go with her mother to help the Israelite women birth babies. That means she probably did it around six or seven years old, like really young. So you younger elementary students in the room, imagine helping your parents birth a baby. Parents, you're welcome for that. Yeah, there you go. But, but again, why Pua? Why, why that name? Um, so get this. One of the most popular stories of Miriam was that she had this strange ability. Again, this is in the Talmud and these, in the tradition of the early Jewish writers. She had this strange ability to take stillborn babies, which, by the way, was, I actually looked this up, is, was one in five babies, roughly, in ancient Mesopotamia. That is wild to me. She would drip wine into their mouths, and they would choke and start breathing. It's a strange story that has this echo of Jesus' first miracle. It's, it's really beautiful, actually. Uh, a, a young prophet who is uh, bringing death to life. Before we go forward, I need to say these rabbinical stories are not considered very weighty in the Christian culture. You might not have heard them. I didn't hear I have never heard them. Um, and this is probably, probably why you don't know a lot about Miriam. However, in Judaism, the power and leadership of Miriam was well known. That's because they revered the commentaries about the Torah, right? They revered them, not as much as the Torah, but they revered them as special and holy and a part of the conversation of what Torah meant. They were, the stories were these bizarre legends 
that, but these stories, whether the, the truth of them, I, I want to get our brain out of like, the, did this happen? Did this not happen? I want you to think about them as uh, a glimpse into how they were talking about Miriam, how they wanted you to feel about Miriam, regardless of how many stories were in, in the actual scriptures. The early Jewish writers really wanted you to consider Miriam to be very important and a specific kind of person. Okay, we'll get to that. But still, I haven't answered why she was named Pua. <laughs> in one of the Talmudic stories, the name Pua was a nickname uh, that relates to her behavior towards Pharaoh. When Miriam heard the royal edict that Pharaoh wanted every male in Egypt killed, she was furious towards Pharaoh. And in this story, Miriam's parents were famous leaders for the Israelite community. They were like representatives to Pharaoh. And, th and this one morning, you know, Miriam happens to be with them. And she hears the edict from Pharaoh. And she, she walks forward, spits at him, Puh! and says, Woe to you on the day of judgment when God will come to demand punishment of you. Again, she's like seven. <laughs> Pharaoh immediately becomes enraged at this child and wants to kill her. She was saved thanks to her mother who calmed Pharaoh down and said... Do you take notice of her? <laughs> she is a baby. She knows nothing. So Miriam was considered a prophet in Israel. The first woman described that way in all of scripture. And the Talmud says that she prophesied before Moses' birth that her parents would give birth to the person who would bring about their people's redemption. She's the one that was like, hey, this is happening. I've, I've got this, you know, God has spoken to me. When Moses was born... The Talmud says that her parents doubted that Moses would save God's people. And so uh, they, with Miriam, with crystal clear conviction, convinced them to save Moses' life by putting him in a basket. And she was so convinced she was right, that's why Miriam follows Moses down the river. And the scriptures say that when Pharaoh's daughter drew Moses out of the water, again, this is the Torah, Miriam is the one that arranged for her mother to nurse Moses and raise him until he was weaned. There is no mention that the mother was like, hey, do this. Here's the plan. This is all Miriam. This is her idea. She's the one that was like, I know what to do. She's like seven, eight. So the, rabbi, the rabbis believed this was her idea. And there's a good chance, again, that she was like eight years old. So this is my favorite. This is my favorite. I've said a lot of stories, but this is interesting. Miriam is most famous. Miriam is most famous, you've probably heard this before, for leading Israel in a song of liberation after the Red Sea collapse and Pharaoh's army is covered by the waters. It's Miriam's song. I'm sure if you, you've probably heard of it, even if you didn't know it was Miriam. Um, the people of God were saved and they were safe. And Miriam starts singing, right? Here's a picture, here's pictures of this event. Well, actually, I didn't add those in the slides. Never mind. <laughs> There's Miriam. Just take a look at that. But I read, to get this, I read in a uh, feminist reading of this text they want to point, they want to read this to you kind of, uh, they want to repeat it again and just listen to how they kind of subtly shift it. How our brains have our own tradition that's unsaid of how we read Miriam singing a song. Check this out. There's no evidence that this was a graceful, joyous moment. Miriam danced and sang on the shore while the soldiers of Egypt drowned at her feet. That's what happened. Miriam is singing a song, looking out over the waters while they're drowning. This is Miriam. She's intense. 
Throughout her life, Miriam began to be associated with water in Jewish tradition. At the Seder meal, when Jewish people around the world today celebrate Moses, Aaron, and Miriam as the founders and saviors of God's people, Miriam is always represented by water. And the Torah tells us that a well, this is strange, but a well followed the people of Israel, and it was Miriam's well, symbolizing her as water to the people of God. And it says that when she died, the well dried up, right? The well dried up. I hope, Miriam, this morning you've seen that she's not what you remember. She is the oldest, the protector of children, the bravest of the bunch, quite possibly the smartest of the bunch, definitely the most clever. But get this, the Midrash says that the Israelite camps set out often to follow the pillar of smoke and fire, with Mary, often, not always, but often with Miriam, the only one leading Israel to follow the pillar of smoke and fire. These stories give us a glimpse into Miriam's leadership in the wilderness, or at least at minimum, how the early Jewish thinkers wanted you to feel and think about Miriam. Something our scriptures are oddly silent on. But the early Jewish tradition wants to make you understand who Miriam was and what she brought to the table. So you have Moses. He is considered the greatest prophet in all of Judaism. But it's not because he's so awesome. It's because he's actually not awesome. (laughs) Moses is a, a traumatized depressive whose only job on the leadership team is to speak to God face-to-face and, re- and relay what God says. But that vulnerability, that vulnerability is what God is drawn to. to speak, he speaks to Moses. But here's the thing. My pitch to you this morning is that Moses was the greatest because of God, not because of Moses. When it comes to the leadership of Israel, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam are a triad leadership team at the heart of the Israelite people. And this group doesn't work without the others. The idea is not exactly revealed to us in the scriptures, but this is absolutely what the Jewish people believe to be true, including the rabbinical faith that Jesus was raised in. You also have Aaron, the middle child, the peacemaker, the soon-to-be priest, the gentle brother who just wants everyone to hang out and be buddies. And you have finally, of course, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the wild protector, the street-smart strategist, the oldest She's been a midwife with her mother since she was six. She has seen some things. She's been through some stuff. She's a prophet in her own right, an artist, a courageous truth teller. Miriam is the energy of the group. Let's get back to the text. Verse 1, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of the Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. So as the story begins, we have the oldest in the middle getting frustrated with their baby brother. Um, Reading the commentaries, there's a million guesses as to what is going on here. Like, everybody has a theory on this. But I just want to summarize some that I think are the best arguments. And also, just to tell you, it's probably not one. It's probably a really complex thing and reasoning as to why this is happening. But Miriam and Aaron are frustrated that Moses is not... One of the arguments is that Miriam and Aaron are frustrated because Moses is not taking care of his wife. Um, Probably because of his constant talking with God. They're probably frustrated with Moses, but they're also concerned for their brother. So two things. They're frustrated and they're concerned for their brother. They're probably feeling both things. And I think this is very relatable. Another explanation is that Aaron and Miriam are mad at Moses for marrying a Cushite. Um, the, the, The ethnicity is entering into their frustration. That is 
absolutely there in the text. And that is a different sermon. Uh, I wish I could talk about that, but I had to make a choice. But given the other text about Moses and his behavior toward his family, I think the heart of this text is that there is some frustrations with Moses because he's not taking care of his wife. So, verse 2. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. So Aaron and Miriam's response to the frustration and concern is, Moses isn't the only leader and prophet here. They are saying, we can do this job too. The response is simultaneously, let me help you, Moses. And also, why is Moses the one getting all the face-to-face attention with God here? What about us? What about us? I submit to you, this isn't Aaron and Miriam being jealous of Moses' leadership. They were equal leaders with Moses. They're actually concerned for Moses, and because of their equal leadership, out of that equal leadership is like, hey, let us help you. And why aren't we the ones, why can't we talk to God? If, if you're having trouble doing it, let us do it. At the heart of this problem is that Miriam is concerned, frustrated, and she's getting impatient. She's trying to fix. She's trying to protect. She's trying to lead. Verse 3. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Okay, all right, good. All right, so this is a a bizarre text. Uh, You can actually see it in the Bible. It's in parentheses. Uh, It's almost like the narrator voice speaking into the text going, just so you know, uh, Moses is very humble. Um, What it basically means is that Moses, like, doesn't respond. That Moses hears the criticisms and doesn't respond. I like to think that Moses is kind of a depressive guy. And so, like, when he hears the criticism, he's like, yeah, it's probably true. But, <laughs> but Moses' inaction to uh, Miriam and Aaron talking about him like this, Moses' inaction actually causes God to act. God, at verse 4, at once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. I love that. Take a look at that. And this moment... God's like, all right, you three children, come here, come here. Uh, This feels a lot like a family meeting. And so God calls the kids to his tent to have a talk. So there the three stand, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. And God's got to like just kind of adjust some things and correct what's going on here. Verse 5, then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, we'll get to the second part. Before we do that, God comes down stands at the entrance of the tent. God comes down, stands at the entrance of the tent, and summons Aaron and Miriam. It's like, Moses, stay over there. Aaron, Miriam, come here. And this is what God says. He said, listen to my words. Where there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. Kind of like going, hey, I know you all are prophets. I speak to you in visions. I speak to you in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. That's a wild phrase. We could just like have a whole sermon on that. When then, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord burned against them, and God left them. So God, God asks a question, and it doesn't. And he doesn't apparently wait for an answer. (laughs) He's like, why? See ya. Uh, maybe Miriam and Aaron are stunned and they can't speak. I mean, could be. 
Um, but verse 10. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. Okay, this is a big deal of the text. Let's get into this. It's a huge part of the story, and it gets complex from here. So everybody turn your thinking brains on. Miriam is at first the only one who is punished. Aaron and and Miriam are standing there, and she is given leprosy. This punishment was traditionally a punishment given to those who slandered another Israelite. So Miriam was beginning to try what she was happening. It shows us that Miriam was trying to take control of the triad of leadership uh, team and thus the punishment. The ritual to cleanse oneself of leprosy was the removal of the person from the community for seven days. And one person was given the responsibility in the, in the Levitical law, one person was given the responsibility of caring for the leprous person while on the outskirts of the camp. So if you got leprosy, seven days, go to the outside. You get to take one person with you and they'll take care of you, but you're on the outside of the camp. Seven days, we'll check on you. If you're good, you can come back in. As I read through a lot of the stories about Miriam, I noticed a pattern amongst the early rabbinical writings. There is a lot of discussion about Miriam and her mother. There's a lot of discussion about Miriam and her brothers and, and, and her siblings. They're fighting and laughing and singing. There is one story that I read about Miriam and her father. One. All the way back in Egypt, when Pharaoh says that all Hebrew boys should be killed, Amram, Amram, I don't know how to pronounce it, that's my best guess, Amram, her father, um, tells the people of Israel to pray and abstain from marital relations with their wives while this edict is going on. In other words, don't have any children. If, he's, if Pharaoh's going to kill him, don't have children. Um, but Miriam has been given the prophecy that Moses is going to be born and Moses will save Israel. And so she goes to her father and says... Uh, And tells him that he is wrong and needs to listen to her. And he dismisses her. And Miriam admonishes him the way she admonished Pharaoh. So one commentary says, Miriam has two different character traits that the rabbis love to discuss. On the one hand, she exhibits, exhibits sensitivity and tenderness toward the weak and the vulnerable. She saves the infant and weeps for her brother while on the other, she acts assertively and aggressively and is insolent both to her father and to Pharaoh. So this is my theory, if you'll allow me to theorize. The criticism and concern for Moses and his marriage is not the point. What's underneath it is a, is a, is a girl, is a woman, who wants to be seen, heard, and maybe hopefully understood by Yahweh. A woman of great ability who has been given responsibility already in in Israel, has been raised to leadership, has been given work to do. She desires work, help, and to lead, wants to help and wants to lead. And my guess is she doesn't want Moses' role. That's too reductive. She wants to know that God sees her. Do Do you see, like, I can do this. Her issue, and what God is correcting in this story, is her patience. Her patience. 
However, we cannot avoid the fact, and we're going to enter into it, that God is extremely harsh to Miriam. He gives her leprosy for her slander, and Moses and Aaron are going to have to banish her to the edge of the community for seven days. They seem to get off scot-free, especially Aaron. Her only interaction for those seven days is to have one person follow her out to the wilderness and tend to her wounds. So I know this might sound like I'm reading a lot into this text. I'm, I'm thinking that as I'm actually giving the sermon. However, knowing what we know about Miriam, knowing the stories... I honestly think God is speaking to, Mir- to Miriam in her language. I-, I believe this. Her way of knowing and being known is not the meek and mild path. She doesn't need to be comforted and taken care of. It's not the hug that really helps Miriam learn or feel connection. Her way of learning, of knowing and being known, is through the heat of conflict. And what is hilarious, and the reason I think this, is because when God punishes Miriam... When God punishes Miriam, God tells Miriam that God speaks to Moses face to face and to Aaron and Miriam in riddles. God's doing this speaking to her face to face. Miriam has somehow angered God into like connecting with her. I I, I, want to say this is Miriam in Aaron's Mount Sinai. This is is Miriam's Mount Sinai. That's what I want to say. Verse 11, and Aaron said to Moses, please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. As you can see, Aaron starts to to feel this like loss. We're going to talk about that loss. Do not let Miriam be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. If you heard my stat about one in five dying in in the Mediterranean uh, or in Mesopotamia, that is a reference to this is traumatic for them. Aaron pleads with Moses, right? Verse 13, so Moses cried out to the Lord. And usually when someone cries out to the Lord, there's like some great thing that Moses just says, please God, heal her. I find the brevity of the prayer so real. Like, just please God, just fix this. Verse 14, the Lord replied to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? In other words, God's mad, like he's mad. Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. So Miriam has leprosy, and the Levitical law says that she's got to go to the edge of the camp. I keep repeating this so you can get it. Edges of the camp for seven days to be examined, and God says seven days is all it's going to take. But we get a glimpse into what I think is amazing about the story, and this is my final point. I'll just be crystal clear. I think the Torah does a massive disservice to Miriam. I think you can obviously tell that, tell I think that. I think the rabbinical writers give us so much more backstory to her and to who, who Miriam is. This, there's one final rabbinical story that I'm going to mention this morning, and it actually comes from a commentary about our text this morning, about this story. The Midrash claims that nobody followed Miriam out to the edges of the community to comfort her for those seven days. Nobody did. She was alone. Except the reason is because God attended Miriam's wounds for seven days. God was speaking to Miriam the way she needed to be spoken to. God saw Miriam for who she was, not in judgment, but in reality. God was not punishing Miriam. God was disciplining Miriam to become who she has been the whole time. 
There's this strange part at the end of chapter 12 that says the people did not move on until she was brought back. And this could easily be read as the whole uh, people of God, the country, was in mourning. Like they're mourning, like, oh, Miriam, we can't move on. But there's not any evidence to that. That's just like a fact that's been said. And so rather, knowing what we know about Miriam and knowing what we know about Moses and Aaron, my guess is they couldn't move on. Like they couldn't get anything organized. Without Miriam, they were not whole. She was the water. And I know the writers of the Torah gave Miriam the symbol of a well, and I think that totally works for a nomadic people in the desert. But maybe we could think of Miriam as a wave. Through Miriam flowed the energy and movement of the people of God. That was what she brought to the leadership team. This wild prophet was becoming who she has been the whole time. Not Moses, not Aaron, Miriam. She had her own path and her own relationship with God. Yes, it might be filled with conflict. It might be filled with conflict. And from the outside, we might read it and go, what in the world is going on? But I think that's Miriam. <laughs> she doesn't mind. And I know there are some kids in the room, and I don't know how, how much of you, you've been listening to this, but if you remember anything from this sermon, if you remember anything, I pray you hear this. Like Miriam, you have a part to play in this church. And if someone says you don't, I'll talk to them. That's my job. Your voice, your life, your ideas, your personality, your dreams are absolutely, are absolutely and fundamentally a part of this church. Now, like right now, not in the future, like right now. And this isn't some sermon where I tell you what that part is. Like Miriam, you are on your own journey. But kids, I promise you, God will speak to you through the events of your life. I'm just telling you that we can't keep moving on without you. Keep your head up. Be patient. If youth ministry and elementary and preschool ministries are for anything, all it is is just teaching you patience. Keep paying attention to what God is communicating to you through your life. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for... Uh, the text this morning, the complexity of a, a, a relationship, the complexity of a, um, a spirituality that is often in conflict, that is one that's geared more towards action, to frustration, to anger, to prophetic anger. And God, you, you respond to that, and you connect, and you have ways of disciplining us and patient, making us more patient so that we can become who we have been the whole time. God, I know there are people in this room who um, often are geared this way. They are not the meek and mild. Sitting in a room quietly uh, is just, you know, and, and spiritualizing the text and uh, feeling what God is doing is just a difficult thing. Many of us are geared towards action, towards work, to conflict, to wrestling, to fighting. And God, I, I'm grateful that you don't break us, break that, or want that removed so we can't, until we can fit in. But you include all of it in. And you're wrestling with us, disciplining us, giving us patience, not removing those parts of us, but channeling it. God, I pray that you would have your way 
with us in our life. That you would not give up on us, but you would complete a good work in us, as you've done with Miriam. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to receive communion now together. Um, and a couple things about that. Uh, for one, uh, primarily, if you call on the name of Jesus, you are welcome at this table. In fact, more than welcome, encouraged to join in this part of our worship service. Uh, the servers will come up and uh, ushers will dismiss everybody row by row. If you're unsure how to do this, just uh, come down to the front, uh, join the line for a server, and the server will say to you as they serve you communion, remember the body and blood of Christ, and you can respond in whatever way you're comfortable, amen, or I will remember. So first we'll receive, uh, read the scripture from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul spoke to the church. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come live inside us and make us new from the inside out, and then send us out into the world to be salt and light, and let the world feast upon us and taste and see that you are good, so that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you come? Come. 